Government's called upon to reward what is good and punish what is evil, but the law determines what is good, what is evil. And now we have the dichotomy between man's definition of what is right or wrong, humans, and God's definition of what is right or wrong. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12, we'll continue our study in, in um, this gospel. We're going to be here one more week. Um, our friend Calvin is here. I know many have been praying for Calvin, which is a blessing. Brother Al's here, Alan Sherry. So um, never doubt that your prayers matter. You can't see them, but they matter. Keep praying. There is much need, and we serve a God who is unlimited. So never forget that. Um, this is the last week of Jesus' ministry before the cross. He has spent three years ministering uh, throughout the nation of Israel about a year and a half up in northern Galilee, the bulk of the time, rest of it down in Judea. He's demonstrated his deity. He's demonstrated his lordship. He's demonstrated power over disease and death and demons and nature. He's stilled storms on the lake. He's walked on water. He's healed literally thousands of people. He's driven out demons. He's raised the dead. He's fed crowds on at least two occasions that numbered probably 15 to 20,000 people. So he has laid down a track record of behavior that demonstrates that he is God in the flesh. There's many responses to this demonstration of power, though. His disciples, the 12 and many others, they follow him, they love him, and they recognize that he is the promised Messiah. The crowds who follow him, they just love him for what he can do for them. Uh, they want the free meals. Uh, they want the miraculous healings. They love the spectacular demonstrations. Uh, of his divine power over demons in nature. They love what they can get from Jesus. They don't follow him because he is the Messiah. The religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the status quo, if you will, the power brokers, they hate him. Jesus is a lethal threat to their religious monopoly because they have massive control over the people through the religious system, and they want to destroy him. So Jesus knows that he has a date with the cross on Friday of Passover week. <clears throat> he begins what we call Passion Week. That's the last week of his life on earth. By entering Jerusalem as Israel's king on Palm Sunday, which we celebrated a few weeks ago. And he's fulfilling a prophecy made that the Messiah would come. And one of the ways you would recognize Messiah is Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and Jesus arranges that. Rob is going to give you a short look at the map of the triumphal entry. It literally went from the Mount of Olives uh, down the hill uh, through the Kidron Valley, up a short rise, and into Jerusalem. Now, Passover was a period of intense activity around Jerusalem. It literally brought in hundreds of thousands of visitors to the city. So it was mass, mass, mass 
confusion. There were literally tens of thousands of people who lined the way from the top of the Mount of Olives down into Jerusalem, shouting Hosanna. Remember, they put their cloaks on the path and their coats on the back of the donkey. And, and uh, they, he rode down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem through the Eastern Gate, also called the Golden Gate. That wall is now blocked off, by the way. Uh, clearly, the people who are shouting Hosanna are looking for a king, a conquering king, because Hosanna means save now. And they weren't interested necessarily in spiritual salvation. They were interested in salvation from the Romans. The Romans were occupying them and had military everywhere. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem. After he gets off the donkey, he goes into the temple. He looks around. He notices the money changers. There's a huge amount of religious commerce that's being taken place on the Temple Mount in the name of God. It says he leaves Jerusalem, walks back up the Mount of Olives, spends the night in Bethany. Bethany is a little town just on the other side of the summit of the Mount of Olives, about two miles east of Jerusalem. Rob's going to show you a picture of that. He stays with his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, this particular uh, pick of the Mount of Olives is seen from the wall. Jerusalem has a big, big wall around it. So you're looking down the Kidron Valley, where the Kidron uh, Creek used to run, up the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is covered with churches and all sorts of commerce, etc., etc. Obviously, it wasn't that way when, when Jesus was there. But you can see a picture of how he would ride down the mountain. I've walked that. Many of you have walked it as well. So it's now Monday, day two. He enters Jerusalem, he comes into the temple, and he drives out the money changers. He turns over their tables, drives out all the animals. Specific temple coinage had to be used. So when you came to worship God at Jerusalem, and you came to Passover week, and you were a pilgrim, and you came from a, another part of the country, or many, many cases, you came from outside the country because the Jewish people were scattered all over the Mediterranean, once a year they'd come to Jerusalem. And you had to use specific temple coinage to pay your temple tax. So they had money changers there to exchange your foreign currency for this temple tax coin, which was a half shekel. And they charged exorbitant exchange rates. If you've ever traveled, you know when you exchange money, there's an exchange rate. And you can see the premiums listed on the board there. Well, they were charging exorbitant rates to change money to pay the temple tax to worship God. And of course, Jesus was livid over that. Actually, it got a lot worse than that. Annas, who was a former high priest, really he had the dynasty there, he had a concession on the Temple Mount that was called the Bazaars of Annas. Now this was an enormously profitable enterprise. When someone comes to worship in the temple, they were required to bring a sacrifice. Remember, that was part of the worship process. So they would bring usually an animal for a sacrifice, a sheep, a goat, a dove, or they could even bring grain or, or wine or incense. But the animals had to meet specific temple specifications. They literally had to be perfect, you know, fit. No disease, no illness. So the animal had to look really, really good and had to be very, very healthy. Now, the system that Anna set up was enormously corrupt. Because the vast majority of the time you brought an animal, the priest would say, animal's not fit. However, I just happen to have an animal that is fit for sacrifice. And it'll cost you only three prices or four. So they were making enormous profits on the temple sacrifice as well as enormous profits on changing money into the specific coinage. 
It was a religious racket. I mean, this was religious mafia on steroids. And Jesus was livid. He said, this is a house of prayer. My house, you're supposed to come here to meet God and you have made it a robber's den. So it was literally religious robbery. And it was designed for worship and they had corrupted the worship of God. The priests were supposed to lead people in worship and they were ripping people off in the name of God. And Jesus was livid. He turned over the money changers, got literally a cord of whips, drove them out of the temple, drove all the animals out of the temple and uh, cleaned it up. So then he goes back home to Bethany to Mary, Martha and Lazarus. The next day is Tuesday. And when he comes into the temple that day, the scribes, the Pharisees, and all the other religious leaders interrogate him. They say, by what authority did you come in here and disrupt our operation? He won't answer. He then teaches the crowds in parables, and he publicly indicts the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, for their hypocrisy and wicked practices. One of the most astonishing chapters in the Bible is Matthew 23. There are seven woe to use. And I mean, Jesus cleans their clock publicly in front of God and everybody. And everybody knows they're corrupt, but Jesus just pulls the covers off and says, you are whitewashed tombs. You're liars, you're hypocrites, etc., etc. So the text says the, the leaders, the religious leaders are furious and they leave the temple, but they lay a plot. How are they going to destroy Jesus? The Sanhedrin is really the governing body of Israel. It's 70 men and the high priests, there's 71. And the Sanhedrin is a combination of a religious governing body and a legislative governing body. So it's like the Supreme Court and Congress rolled into one. Very, very powerful, the Supreme Body at that point in time. And they need to get rid of Jesus, but they have a problem. They want to seize Jesus and they want to kill him, but the crowds love him. And there's several hundred thousand people in Jerusalem at this point in time, and they all said, Hosanna, blessed is the king. So they recognize Jesus as king. The Sanhedrin want to get rid of him, but the crowds love him. So if they arrest Jesus, they're going to have a riot. And the problem is Rome does not like unrest. Matter of fact, anytime during religious festivals, the Romans beef up their military presence. They have got an enormous number of soldiers on site in Jerusalem because there have been a numerous assassinations, stabbings, murders that occur during Passover because the Jews hated Roman occupation. You can understand why. So the Romans have taken the right of execution away from the Jews. They can't execute anybody. So they can't just assassinate Jesus. And if they arrest him, the crowds are going to go wacko and the Romans are going to come down on them. So the Jewish religious and political leaders have got to figure out a way to turn the crowds against Jesus and turn Rome against Jesus because they've got to get rid of him because he's interfering with their prophets. I mean, they're making a lot of money on this religious uh, mafia system here. So there were two real powerful groups in Israel at this point in time. One of them is the Pharisees and one of them is the Sadducees. The Pharisees were not a political party. They were really a religious party. The name Pharisees means the separatists. They, were, they believed in being separate. They're about 6,000 Pharisees, not a big number. And they were the religious conservatives of the day. The Sadducees were the religious liberals. The Pharisees were very, very strict. 
They were devoted to knowing and applying the letter of the law to every area of your life. Man, they had 613 rules that they had written. And it involved how to wash and let the water drip off your elbows. And I mean, it was a huge, very legalistic, heavyweight system that they obeyed. They were very legalistic. They were very self-righteous. And they were very hypocritical since they didn't follow the rules that they told everybody else to follow. Right? The Pharisees hated Rome. And they advocated for a free, sovereign Israel. Now, the other political party in the Sanhedrin was the Sadducees. And they were politicians, and they were allies with Rome. So the Pharisees hated Rome. The Sadducees loved Rome. The Sadducees were sometimes called the Herodians because they were loyal to the family of Herod. Herod, remember, was the puppet king in Israel. And he and half a dozen of his sons, he had ten wives. He murdered three or four of them. Really dysfunctional family. We talked about this several months ago. But anyway, this dynasty continues to rule in this area. The Sadducees are a political party that are allies with the Herodians because the Herodians are representatives of Rome. The Sadducees are the wealthy. They're the aristocratic. They're the upper crust. And they despise the common people. They hold most of the seats in the Sanhedrin, highly political. And they only believe in the five books of Moses. The rest of the Old Testament, eh, they don't believe it. doesn't exist. So they don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in an afterlife. They believe when you die, you die, right? Go in the ground, push up daisies. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees because they viewed them as traitors. They were in bed with Rome. Rome had military presence in Israel. And the Pharisees were nationalists. The Sadducees were getting very, very wealthy from their arrangement with the Romans. So we have these two parties who hate each other. However, they both are united in their hatred of Jesus because Jesus threatens both of them. Let's pick up the narrative in Mark 12, beginning at verse 13. Then they sent, the Sanhedrin sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, on the face of it, this is really strange bedfellows. You're looking at these two parties that hate each other coming to Jesus. They despise each other, but as the old political saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, at least temporarily. So they hated Jesus more than they hated each other. So they've been plotting how to destroy Jesus, and they've settled on a strategy. In this chapter, they send three waves of people, three waves of representatives in the Sanhedrin, and all three of them are, have questions that are designed to trap Jesus. They're hoping he will say something stupid that will turn the crowds against him and turn Rome against him. Now, we're only going to look at the first one. But the Gospel of Luke reveals their motives. If Luke 20, 20 says, And they, the Sanhedrin, the ruling body, the religious leaders, they watched Jesus and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and authority of the governor. Now, the governor is Pontius Pilate. And he's appointed by Caesar. 
So he's the one who's ruling, and he happens to be in town during the Passover, right? He's going to be on site. So the Caesar here is Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar took office in AD 14 after Caesar Augustus died. Caesar Augustus was the emperor when Jesus was born in about 4 BC, and he reigned until 14 AD. He dies. Tiberius, uh, who was adopted by him, becomes his heir, and he reigns from 14 AD to 37 AD. So from Jesus' entire ministry, Tiberius Caesar was the, the emperor at that point. So this come, group comes with, to Jesus, and they flatter him. I mean, they're buttering him up. And the, the, the flattery is with an intention to deceive. And you'll notice that what they say about Jesus is, in fact, true. They do. What do they say about Jesus? They say, Jesus, we know that you're truthful. You defer to no one. You're not partial to any. You teach the way of God in truth. Is that all true? Sure. Here's the problem. They didn't believe a word of it. So they're speaking truth about Jesus in order to flatter him, but they don't believe anything that they're saying. They call him teacher and rabbi. Man, that's a title of great respect, right? But they despise him. They say that Jesus is truthful, and yet they believe in their heart of hearts that he's a deceiver, that he's a pretender, that he's a fraud. He's not really the Messiah. He's just a man who's pretending to be the Messiah. They say that he doesn't defer to anyone. He doesn't show partiality. He teaches the way of God and truth. And that is, in fact, correct, but they don't believe it. The word truth here is the Greek word orthos. Orthos means straight, upright, correct. You know where we get our word orthopedic from? It means straight, right? We're going to straighten those bones out. Or orthodox, right? So they really say, Jesus, you're a straight shooter, which was true. But they themselves are crooked to the core, right? They were speaking truth about Jesus, but their motives in saying it were very, very deceitful. And you know, it, it speaks to us today. How many of you like to hear nice things about yourself? We're all susceptible to flattery. Have your children ever come to you and buttered you up before they made a request? You know who's even better than that? Your grandchildren. I mean, they will lay it on, right? You're so wonderful, blah, 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 you know, right? Dale Carnegie said, flattery is telling the other person precisely what they think about themselves. <laughs> Adelaide Stevenson was a politician in mid-century, not uh, 20th century, and he gives us some perspectives on flattery. He once said, flattery is all right as long as you don't inhale. There's truth to that, isn't there? The truth of it is, <clears throat> God's opinion is the only one that really matters, because God never flatters. God always speaks absolute truth. So when these Herodians and Pharisees get together and they say, shall we pay or shall we not pay? What they're really doing is putting Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Because either way he answers, he's going to be in trouble. And they've got this figured out. If Jesus says, yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, the crowds who follow him will abandon him. And Jesus will stop being a threat to their religious monopoly because the crowds will leave. If he says, no, you should not pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to turn around and run to the governor and turn him into the Roman authorities as an insurrectionist and have him arrested for treason because 
Counseling people not to pay taxes was an act of treason, right? Remember, Rome has been in Israel for a number of decades. Soldiers on the ground. Pastor Roger talked about a Roman soldier compelling you to take your pack a mile or two. Happened all the time. So they were oppressed by the Romans. The average Jewish citizen hated Romans, hated their occupiers, and they especially hated paying taxes. Now, none of us like paying taxes, at least I don't think you do. And the taxes Israel paid were really, really onerous. There were property taxes, use taxes, road taxes, food taxes, military taxes, temple taxes, kind of like today. <clears throat> there were lots of taxes. Tax on this, tax on that, a tax on a tax, right? So the Roman Empire had a very interesting mechanism for collecting taxes. They wouldn't collect them themselves. They would sell tax collection franchises to local Jews. They say, for a price, we're going to give you the franchise to collect taxes in this area, right? And you're going to collect it from your fellow Jewish citizens, and you're going to forward it to us, and here's how much we want. These Jewish tax collectors who paid a very high price for the franchise would typically collect far more taxes from their fellow citizens than Rome wanted. I mean, they had to make a profit here, right? I mean, I'm collecting taxes. So they might charge the tax you owed plus some premium. And I mean, sometimes the premium was extreme. So they became very rich on the backs of their fellow Jewish citizens. So anytime in Scripture it says... Consider them as a tax gatherer. That was an insult because tax gatherers were considered to be scum, just extortionist traitors, because they would come to you and they'd say, you're going to pay two bucks this poll tax. Now, Rome may only want 50 cents, but they have the Roman military behind them to say you pay two bucks or I take you out, right? So these tax gatherers, these fellow Jews were called publicans and sinners. So anytime you see Jesus hanging out with the publicans and sinners, that means he's, among other things, he's hanging out with the tax collectors who were despised. I mean, they were just worse than child molesters. They, I mean, they literally were, were treated as garbage. By the way, the apostle Matthew, also known as Levi, was a tax collector. He was a customs agent in Capernaum because there was a major trade route that ran through Capernaum. Anytime you pass goods on a trade route, you had to pay a toll. Had to pay a tax. Talk about a railroad tax? Yeah, that was it, a trade tax. You know who else was a tax gatherer? Who's the wee little man? Zacchaeus. Except he was a chief tax collector. He was a tax manager. He had a bunch of agents working for him. He was very, very wealthy. And people hated him until Jesus brought him into the fold and he got converted and began to pay back what he owed. So the taxes the Jewish people paid Rome supported the military force which occupied their land, which they hated. And Rome was not exactly a good corporate citizen in many ways. Rome was idolatrous. Rome was immoral. Rome was pagan. Any patriotic Jew would despise paying taxes to God-hating Invaders. And the specific tax that they're talking about here was a poll tax or a census tax. It was one denarius per year per person. 
And this is only one of the many taxes. So one denarius per person per year. And a denarius was one day's wage for a laboring worker. So denarius, one day's pay. And remember Jesus was about to be born and Caesar Augustus did what? He ordered a census. So you had to go back to your home city and register. That was all about taxes. Because if we knew where you were and how many there were, we knew how many taxes we could collect. Now, don't the United States conducts a census every 10 years. The mission is the same. They want to know where you are. They want to know what you do. They want to know what's going on in the land. I'm not saying the census is a bad thing. I'm saying don't be naive. It also has to do with tax collection. That's part of the nature of the beast. So this poll tax had been a Roman demand since 6 AD. That's when uh, Judea became a Roman province. And there were many, many responses to this taxes. The Jewish zealots were, a, were, a, were an independence party. They hated Rome, and they had a fair number of people who were assassins. And they would stick a knife in a Roman centurion or whoever they could at any point in time they thought it was possible. They were called the Sicarii. That's the, that's the dagger they used. They refused to pay the tax. They said, come get me. The Pharisees, the religious sect, they were nationalists. They were patriots. And they paid the taxes with really strong objections, but they paid it. The Sadducees paid it willingly because they profited from Rome's rule. So they were very willing to pay the taxes. So there's a big division among the Jews about who pays it, but most of the common people couldn't stand to pay it. Both the Sadducees and the Pharisees believed in the separation of church and state. The Pharisees believed that religion was superior to the state, and so they would say, don't pay the tax to Caesar. The Herodians or the Sadducees believed the state was superior to religion, so they would say, do pay the tax. So they've got Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. And what they're asking Jesus is, is it lawful to pay the tax? And of course, you should say, lawful according to whose standard? Of course, they're talking about lawful according to God's standard. So the Pharisees who asked this question, they're convinced that Jesus is going to say, don't pay the tax. Because the Messiah, remember, Jesus claims to be the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to come to earth to do what? Rule and reign. I mean, the Messiah would never support a foreign ruler like the Romans over God's people. The Messiah would never say pay tax to an idolatrous ruler like Caesar. I mean, Rome worships Caesar and worship the true God. Furthermore, they think that Jesus will never risk his popularity with the crowds by saying, do pay the tax. Because the common person hated Rome and didn't want to pay the tax. So they're betting that Jesus is going to say, don't pay the tax. They already got this figured out. If Jesus says, don't pay the tax, the Herodians are standing right there. They have a direct line to Pontius Pilate. They will get on the cell phone. Actually, they'll send a runner down and they'll say, this guy is counseling insurrection. Arrest him. Problem solved. Rome killed people routinely and executed insurrectionists and tax avoiders, etc. with great zeal. Verse 15. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? 
bring me a denarius to look at. They brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Luke and Matthew give you a little different perspective. It says in Luke, he detected their trickery. He could read their motives. He knew that they were dishonest. They weren't seeking information. They were seeking to trap him. Matthew says that Jesus said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? See, Jesus knew they had been flattering him. He knew that their question was designed to trap him. And he calls him on it. He says, why are you testing me? The, the word test here or catch, you know, you're trying to catch him. It's a hunting word. It has the word of setting a trap to catch one's prey so you can kill it. Jesus, obviously, being God, discerns their intent. And by the way, the, the coin that Rome would accept is a denarius. And we've already said a denarius is one day's wage for one day's work. And it was the only coin Rome would accept for the poll tax. That coin. You had to have that coin. And it was a coin that was used by Rome for about 600 years. It was introduced in 300 B.C., and they used it for about 600 years to 380, which is older than most of us, right? It's a long time. Only the emperor had the authority to mint coinage. If you minted coinage, that was called counterfeiting, kind of like today. Governments have always retained the right to mint the coins. And the coins always bore the image of whatever emperor ordered that coin to be uh, minted. And it bore the image of the emperor on one side and an inscription on the other side. Rob's going to show you a coin of this denarius with, with Tiberius's picture on one side and an inscription as well. Now, the, the, the emperor at this time was Tiberius, and he was portrayed on the coin as the son, as the divine son of the god Augustus and the goddess Livia. The inscription on this coin reads, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Now, Augustus means the revered one. So you're worthy of worship, right? So Tiberius is claiming to be the son of a god because Augustus was Caesar Augustus, and he was worshipped as God. And the reverse side of the coin reads Pontifus Maximus, which really means the greatest priest. And of course, today we call the Pope Pontifus Maximus. So the Pharisees would have regarded this coin as an idol because it had graven images. It had the picture of someone who's claiming to be God. And so the Pharisees would have said, this coin is an idol. It was a graven image. It violates the second commandment. The Pharisees kept coinage so they could do business, but their coins had no inscription at all and no engraving at all and no pictures at all because they weren't going to violate the second commandment. So they would have expected Messiah to denounce these coins as idols, denounce Caesar as a false god, and tell him not to pay any tax. Of course, the Herodians were to be part of the Romans, and they would be arrested for treason. However, let's suppose Jesus says, um, pay the taxes. Pay the taxes. The crowd who thinks he's Messiah are going to say, I'm not following you anymore because you are telling me to submit to Rome, and I hate these people. And they've killed my relatives, and they steal my stuff, and they make me carry their bags. And these... Romans are oppressing you. So the Jewish Messiah would never kowtow to Rome. And because you're telling me to pay taxes, you can't be the Messiah. Either way, they think they have him trapped. 
However, Jesus, being the Son of God, is altogether wise, and he confounds them with this profound response. And in verse 17 is the heart of the message. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Here's the principle. Give the government what you owe it, some of your wealth. Give to God what you owe him, all of your worship. Give the government what you owe it, some of your wealth. Give to God what you owe him, all of your worship. So Jesus, altogether wise, doesn't fall into the either-or trap, shall we pay or shall we not pay. He literally tells them it's both and, right? Render means to give back. Render means you have a moral obligation to give back. You have a moral obligation to pay back what you owe. Render means you have a debt that must be paid. You must pay both God and Caesar what is rightfully theirs because you owe both God and Caesar. Of course, this raises the question, exactly what is Caesar's? And exactly what is God's? Now, I've got to tell you that my flesh thinks that Caesar's a greedy little pig that wants everything. I'm just saying. I'm just being full confessions here. God obviously has a viewpoint that's somewhat wiser than Brad's by in an infinite margin. So when Jesus says, render to Caesar what Caesar's, render to God what's God, he's saying both of these spheres, government and God, have a sphere of influence, but it's not 50-50. In other words, Caesar has a sphere of ownership that is separate from God's and God's is separate from Caesar's. That is not what he's saying. God owns it all. The earth, everything in it, everyone on it, everyone on it. God not only owns it all, God rules over it all because he's the sovereign who created it all in the first place. So all authority, human authority included, ultimately comes from God because God is the ultimate ruler. I know some of you are going to swallow hard. But there is no king, no president, no emperor, no dictator, no despot, Anywhere who rules without God allowing it. That's true. I didn't say we understood why. You will not understand, we will not understand the mind of God as long as we're unfallen flesh. That's reality. We understand only a minute, infinitesimal portion of the mind of God as he has revealed it to us. So Jesus is going to delineate our proper response to Caesar and to God with an illustration. Jesus says, show me a denarius. They don't have one. They don't carry one. They got to go get one. They found one. He holds up the denarius so everyone can see Caesar's image on the denarius. Now, of course, in that days, any coin that bore the image of the ruler was considered the property of that ruler. I mean, the ruler said, mint the coin, put my picture on it. They had ordered it to be made. And so Jesus was saying, since this coin bears the image of Caesar, give it to him. Because it belongs to him, right? Taxes are a debt that we owe to the government in return for the services it performs on our behalf. 
Now, I can hear you say, and I will agree with some of you, Brad, you have no idea. I am paying far more taxes than I'm getting in services. This is not a fair trade. And of course, some of you will also say, Brad, there are a lot of people that are getting a lot more goodies that are not paying for it or that I am paying for. And I understand that as well. But when we understand that God owns it all, then the taxes you pay to the government, you give for God's sake and under God's authority. What is the government's only becomes the government's by God's permission, design, and command. Nobody owns anything outside the sovereignty of God. Right? Nothing. It's all under the authority of God. So God honors the legitimacy of the state and the rights of the state to collect taxes because he's the author of human government. Furthermore, God commands everyone to be subject to human government. And I've got to tell you, these two passages have cleaned my clock over the years and still do. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. Be subject. I got a problem right there. My pride does not want to be subject. Be subject for the Lord's sake, key phrase, to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. We don't submit blindly. We submit first to God, and then for God's sake and God's glory, we submit to all the human institutions that he has established under his ultimate authority. God uses human institutions to accomplish his eternal purposes even evil human institutions are subject to the sovereignty of God. This is a pretty extended passage here, about seven verses. I'm going to put it all on screen for you, Rob will. Romans 13. The classic, and there's multiple passages. This is the classic one on human authority. And you're going to read this, and you're going to say, this is pretty inclusive, right? I mean, it says... Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Here's the principle. Christians are to obey God above all. 
and then obey the human institutions that he has established. Christians are to obey God above all and then obey the human institutions that he has established. Now, there's really four points or four viewpoints, if you will, that describe the Christian's interaction with human government. Number one, God alone is our authority. God alone is our authority. And the solution is complete separation from the world. No contact. You look at monasteries, convents, those are strategies of complete separation from the world. I'm going to put a wall up and I'm not going to have any interaction with them. And God alone is my authority and I have no contact with government. So therefore, I can't be corrupted by it. The second is the polar opposite. The state alone is our authority. Now, this is the secular, humanistic, atheistic point of view that rejects God completely, says he doesn't exist, and trusts in the state alone. These are the folks who pledge allegiance to the United States of America, but don't say one nation under God, right? They believe that the state should not protect freedom of religion. It should prevent freedom of religion by commanding freedom from religion. We have a culture today that increasingly says the state's job is to make sure that there is no religion in the public square. All religion except, of course, the politically correct civic religion that says the state is supreme and the state is the Messiah that will take care of all your needs. Third point of view. God and the state are both authorities, but the state is dominant. This is the view in our culture that religion is fine, but it's a private matter between you and God. And religion has no say and no authority in the public square. The state makes the rules, and the church must obey the legislature in any and all cases. You can pray at home, you can pray at church, but you can't pray in the public square because public prayer is imposing your religious values on others. So the state then determines the boundaries of religious freedom. That's a view, and it's increasingly prevalent. The fourth one, God and the state both have authority, but God is dominant because the state derives its authority from God. Now, that's the biblical model that's taught here. When God and the state are in opposition, God is the final authority who must be obeyed regardless of consequence. So in God's kingdom, there is a place for civil disobedience, but it is a place with very strong biblical mandates. The only time you and I are free to disobey the state is when the state or the government commands you to do something that requires you to disobey God. In that case, Christians must say with Peter and John, Acts 5, we must obey God rather than men. So if you are commanded by the state to do something that violates the law of God, then you have an obligation to disobey the state and live with the consequences. Peter and John and the disciples were whipped and thrown into prison, and they were willing to go to prison for their faith because they said, we are going to obey God because you have commanded us not to preach the gospel, and Jesus Christ commanded us to preach the gospel, and we must obey God rather than men. So the Bible teaches that God is the source of all authority and is the author of human authority called government. And God has ordained human government for the good of human society. 
The problem is human government will be administered by who? Sinful, fallen, broken, selfish people. And therefore, there's always going to be errors and abuses in human government, and those errors and abuses should be corrected. Because the state should be as just as possible. It's never going to be perfect, but it should be held to a standard of justice. Government is designed to restrain evil using force when necessary, because governments enforce morality. Do what is right, don't do what is right, don't do what is wrong. The big question that we're fighting over today, and we've been fighting over for thousands of years as human beings, whose morality is getting enforced? Who gets to make the rules that everybody else has to live by? Because the function of law is to declare what is right and what is wrong and what's the penalty for wrongdoing. Correct? Say yes. Government's called upon to reward what is good and punish what is evil, but the law determines what is good, what is evil. And now we have the dichotomy between man's definition of what is right or wrong, humans, and God's definition of what is right or wrong. And we as believers live according to God's definition of what is right or wrong. You must understand there is a huge difference between what is legal and what is moral. When Hitler butchered six million Jews in Germany, it was legal. The Supreme Court had passed laws that says, you can do that. Did that make it right? No, it was despicable and evil by God's standard, completely, totally. So governments have force that is delegated to them by God, and they are accountable to God for how they use that power. And history, of course, teaches us that some leaders do that better than others, right? But God does not give us the option to choose only to obey if we happen to have a righteous leader, unless they command us to disobey God, in which case we are going to obey God. You look at Rome. Rome was a pagan, godless, immoral society. It had a massive welfare state. In Rome, slavery was common, very common. Women and children had no rights at all. The emperors worshipped as God, and yet the Bible says you obey human government regardless of its level of righteousness. And of course, Rome, for all its faults, brought massive benefits to its citizens. I mean, the Roman Empire built aqueducts, sewers, roads, bridges, facilitated trade. If you lived in Israel during this period of time, you didn't have to worry about any foreign invader. There are Roman soldiers everywhere. And you're going, Brad, you don't understand. They were oppressing me. That is correct. That is correct. They were. And I think we have the right, the civic responsibility, to voice God's standards of righteousness in the government we live in. Because governments are comprised of sinful people and they will pass legislation that is wicked. They will. And they do. And that's where we say, number one, we have an obligation to try and get righteous legislation passed. And number two, if they command you to do something that God forbids, you will obey God rather than men. Now, we live in the American empire. We don't like to think that, but we it's an empire. And it's on a scale that is much vaster than Rome ever was. It's the greatest empire that history has taught us. And like Roman citizens, we pay taxes to support this empire. 
we still know the benefits of living here outweigh the costs. You know why we know that? People are breaking down the doors to get into the United States not to leave. We are not problem free. We are not a righteous nation. We are not a Christian nation. The last Christian nation was Israel, and that was a theocracy, and God ruled it. Human government is built by sinners, but instituted by God, and God says, don't resist authority, because when you do, you're resisting me, unless they're violating my law. The truth is, society cannot function without governmental authority. You guys, you need to understand that my flesh doesn't like any of this. My flesh wants to rebel. My flesh wants to do what I want to do. It does. Obeying government makes me sick. But I understand that God has instituted it, and I am obedient to him, and therefore I will obey human authority, whether I want to or not. You want to know what happens when there's no governmental authority? Read the last verse of the book of Judges. Judges 21-25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You want to know what happens when law ceases to be enforced by government? Everyone becomes their own law and restraint on sin disappears. And at that point in time, might is right. And the powerful will always oppress the powerless and there is no restitution. Because when there is no fear of judgment, lawlessness increases. Now you can write that down. When there is no fear of judgment, lawlessness increases. And unfortunately, that is our culture today. Lawlessness is increasing because there is no fear of judgment. Now, taxes are paid by the citizens for the services the government provides, and God commands people to pay taxes. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax are due. The very first mention of taxes in the Bible is Joseph. There's a famine coming in Egypt. Joseph collects all the grain. He imposes a 20% tax rate on the Egyptians in order to store up grain for the coming famine. He stores up all the grain. The famine comes, and he doesn't even give them the grain. He sells it to them. Think about that for a welfare state, right? Joseph was God's man that instituted the tax plan that accomplished God's purpose in Israel. So, when you pay taxes to the government, you are really paying them to God because God owns the government. Even the tax money. I got challenged with something several years ago that I'm still struggling with. The challenge is this. Pay your taxes with the same joy as you give your offerings to the Lord. That really challenged Brad's faith. Because God owns the government as well as the charities. God says, I love a cheerful giver. I wonder if he loves a cheerful taxpayer as well. <laughs> It doesn't mean you should pay more taxes than you owe. Taxes are legally exacted. Don't be foolish. Be wise. Taking every legal means to reduce your tax liability is tax avoidance, and that is prudent. Taking illegal measures to reduce your taxes is called tax evasion, and that'll get you jail time. Big difference. Actually, Jesus paid taxes himself in Matthew 27. He got a tax bill, this exact same bill. 
Peter said, Lord, we got a tax bill. Jesus said, you think we ought to pay it? Who pays taxes, the sons of the kingdom or somebody who's not? Peter says, well, kings don't tax their own children. I mean, come on, they can raise revenue from somebody else. Jesus said, that's right, so we're exempt. But, so we don't corrupt our testimony, pay the taxes. He said, Peter, go get your fishing line, go out. And he went out in the lake, threw a rod in, caught a fish, and there's the tax money in the fish's mouth. And I'm going, man, if only it was that easy. Right? <laughs> Lord, if you could lay a little tax money on me like that, I'd be glad to pay it, right? <laughs> so, we've said, what is Caesar's? Obviously, monetary wealth. What is God's? Render to God the things that are God's. That's the global. What belongs to God? Now, God owns it all. So you say, well, everything belongs to God. That's true. But what he owns most of all is you and we bear his image. We are minted in his coin, created in his likeness. Remember he held up this, the coin and he says, that's got Caesar's image, pay it to him. You bear God's image and you owe him what? Yourself, your worship. We not only have been created in his image, we have been redeemed from the slave market of sin by his precious blood. He bought us out of slavery. Even more amazingly, and I should have mentioned this last week, we not only have been set free from sin, we have been adopted into his family. He calls us what? Sons and daughters. Behold what manner of love the Father has shown us is that we should be called children of God, and such we are. Amazing. We're a part of his forever family. So you give some temporary earthly stuff to the government who operates under God's authority. You give yourself, your eternal soul to God, each and every day. And one of the reasons people have trouble paying taxes, Brad, you don't understand the government does many foolish things with my money. You do many foolish things with your money, <laughs> right? From God's standpoint. So if God owns it all, that means every spending decision is a spiritual decision. Which means we should pray over every spending decision. But we don't because we don't want God telling us what to do, right? All things belong to him, especially us, because he shed his blood for our souls and that lives forever in heaven. So let's summarize. Give the government what you owe it. Some of your wealth. It doesn't say all your wealth. It says some of your wealth. Give to God what you owe him. All of you. All of your worship. Don't worship the money for heaven's sakes. That's an absolute disastrous decision. Number two, Christians are to obey God above all and then obey the human institutions that God has established. Okay, I think there's enough to work on here for the next few days. Um, Lord willing, another 167 hours. We'll finish up, uh, Lord willing, Mark next week. And uh, hopefully we'll have books to hand out for you for First Timothy and Titus that will begin um, in June. So now that you know, do, and I do love you, and Tom, if you would come and reveal our hearts by our prayers and praise and bring us to the Lord, that'd be great. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. 
Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.